As you hear Gene read the scriptures this morning, you're going to see two very different, almost oppositional views of leadership. One from the writer of the Hebrews, who describes Jesus as being that high priest, that servant of all. And then two disciples who really wonder kind of what their role might be in this new kingdom, one to be basically the greatest. And listen for Jesus' response. Every high priest chosen from among mortals is put in charge of things pertaining to God on their behalf to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He is able to to deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is subject to weakness. And because of this, he must offer sacrifice for his own sins as well as for those of the people. And one does not presume to take this honor, but takes it only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not glorify himself in becoming a high priest, but was appointed by the one who said to him, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. As he also says in another place, You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to the one who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And having been made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. Having been designated by God a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Holy wisdom, holy word. Thanks be to God. As you are able, let's stand for the reading of the gospel. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came forward to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What is it you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. But Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? They replied, We are able. Then Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink you will drink, and with the baptism with which I am baptized you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. When the ten heard this, they began to be angry with James and John. So Jesus called them and said to them, You know that among the Gentiles, those whom they recognize as their rulers lord it over them, and their great ones are tyrants over them. But it is not so among you, but whoever wishes to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you must be a slave of all. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, 
and to give his life a ransom for many. This is God's word. It was in about June of 2006 that she showed up in my office. She was tired, burned out, and overwhelmed with life. Her job, which at one point she loved, had become drudgery. In about the mid to late 80s, she was a part of one of the most popular television shows in the history of television. A show of comedy, and she was among the cast. She was not one of the elite stars, but served just underneath that and was well-known across the country. Here she was, almost 20 years later, and what she described to me was a life that just wasn't what she was hoping for. Through tears, she talked about the fact that she felt as though she was losing her family, losing her job, losing all of that which she had worked so hard to do. She put on 30 plus pounds and was disgusted with herself about that. And she had no idea now what to do. She felt absolutely lost. What should I do, she said. I looked at her and after a fairly long pause said, Melanie, I think it's time to go to New Orleans. And she smiled. And then she remembered that just under one year earlier, the city of New Orleans had been all but destroyed by Hurricane Katrina. The church had already sent three mission teams to rebuild a church, Bethany United Methodist Church, that sat two blocks off of Lake Pontchartrain, and for unbelievable amounts of time was under nine to ten feet of water. Teams had gone in and pulled all of that stuff out of the church and rebuilt that church, not because somehow that church was set apart from anywhere else, but that pastor had a vision for what that church could become, not just for that region around Lake Pontchartrain, but for the whole city. It was his vision that took these teams there, not the churches, although the church responded. And so what was created in that church with those first three teams was an oasis of green, of flowers and daffodils, uh, of just an unbelievable, beautiful place in the midst of the destruction, which gave hope to everyone else in that city. And now I looked at Melanie and said, now it's your turn to go. And I think God's calling you to go. It wasn't until later that Melanie found out that what I was recommending was that she go with 24, 14 to 18 year olds. Yeah, I just want you to sit on that for just a second. 24, 14 to 18 year olds. Now let me just talk about 14 to 18 year olds just a little bit and apologies to any 14 to 18 year olds that are in this service. For many 14 to 18 year olds, the world revolves around them. It just does. I have a 15-year-old. I know this to be true, and I've had three previous ones. It's what they should be. The world should, in some ways, revolve around them, but there is more to life than that. 
Melanie spent uh, two to three weeks in training about what she was going to face. She spent three weekends of just learning some of the construction skills. She learned how to use a respirator and how to put on a Tyvek suit that was, had absolutely no oxygen coming into it. She learned what she was going to face with the different kinds of populations there. And she took it all on with incredible gusto, although a little bit with a little bit of trepidation. And then they went. And I will never forget the day they came back. And we saw some of the pictures. Because what we saw were 14 to 18 year olds with four or sometimes five leaders. And what they were doing, by the way, their task, their task was to muck out houses. Now it's not a whole lot different than what it was in the Old West. The things they mucked out back then were stalls. I want you to imagine for just a second houses that had been sitting in nine to 10 feet of water. What that would have done to the sheetrock and now we're almost a year later. I want you to imagine for a second what the furniture looked like. I want you to imagine for a second what the carpet smelled like. And I want you to add to that for just a second the animals that were running through these places, particularly the rats. Did I mention it was 14 to 18 year olds? <laughs> what was astounding was that Melanie, along with all of these 24, these 30 people, what we saw more than anything is they were in their white Tyvek suits, having to, and by the way, they went in August. <laughs> 90 plus degrees, 98% humidity. They literally had to empty out their respirators. And respirators are those, two, those goggles with the kind of breathers on both sides. They had to empty out their respirators about once every 15 minutes because the sweat just filled them up. You would think, wouldn't you, that what would be coming from these kids and these adults would be complaints. What we saw in the pictures and the videos was dancing, singing, jokes, fun, competition between the 15 or 16 year old boys who thought they could slam head, sledgehammers into sheetrock better than the girls. Guess who lost? <laughs> what happened for Melanie after that trip was she changed her perception of leadership. Suddenly, she saw her children through different lenses. She saw her husband through a different lens. She saw herself through a different lens. Didn't hurt that she lost about 15 pounds but just because of the sweat and felt like she was in the best shape of her life. But her witness and the witness of those kids coming back to the church changed that church and they still talk about it today. That church sent 12 to 14 teams, I have lost count now, to rebuild New Orleans. And that became one of the central focuses of that church. Christ 
centered leadership. Melanie never ran a company, was not a CEO, wasn't some big officer in the Screen Actors Guild, didn't serve any of those, but what she did was transform that church with a whole different understanding of leadership that began with the work she did with those 24 kids and brought that mentality back to everything she did. It was absolutely transformational. It's the kind of leadership that changes lives that enhances lives, serves lives, even again, as I said, transform lives. Many of you know that I spent nine years traveling the country talking about what places children and youth at risk. All those things that surround them. All the fears that we carry as parents and grandparents, aunts and uncles and neighbors, hoping beyond hope that our children don't get involved in the things that they often are confronted with. But what was more of a pleasure than anything was talking about those things that when present reduce risk in our kids, empower them to be stronger. What was amazing is how, how much what we talked about and what we found out in research meshes with what Jesus brought, the lessons that he brought. At first service this morning in the children's moment, you know, I bring a backpack um, every week, and this morning in the backpack was this. And you can just imagine the kids saying, a backpack in a backpack. <laughs> and I talked to them about the fact that they have a phenomenal opportunity to change lives. We had three-year-olds and five-year-olds, seven-year-olds, ten-year-olds sitting around up here. And we talked about the fact that <clears throat> right here in Bellevue, in the Bellevue School District, are 3,128 children who go to school hungry every day. Right here in Bellevue. And I looked at these kids and I said, what do you think you can do about it? And what do you think their response was? I don't know. That's the right response. Until what we do is we look at these children and we say to them, you know what? There are things you can do. There are things that you can do, you, to help these hungry children have food. And here's what I'm proposing is that you go home with your parents and you pick up one of the lists of the food that goes in that backpack. And you go shopping and I'm saying to the parents, don't you buy the food. Don't you take that food off the shelf. You allow those children to take that food off the shelf. And oh, by the way, when you get to the register, don't slide the cart. Hand the card to the child and have them run the cart and then talk to them about the fact that what you're doing as adults and what they're participating in as they slide that card, what you're doing as adults is you're offering a part of your hard-earned money to help someone else. And then maybe even offer them the opportunity to take some piece of their allowance that will go for that food. What changes the lives of our children and youth is exactly what happened in New Orleans, but it doesn't require going to New Orleans. It requires a shift in understanding that even the children 
can play a significant role in creating health in the life of another human being. That as families, what we do, or as couples, or as a youth group, or as a Sunday school, what we do is we dedicate ourselves with the involvement of these children and these youth in feeding those who are hungry. And you know what? By doing something as simple as that, we are empowering our children and they are at much less risk of being involved in other things that would be negative. What we're doing is creating the model that Jesus brought. I want to remind you that Jesus, as he recruited his disciples, I, just, I want to remind you that we have this image of the disciples as being this poor motley crew. Well, let me just use Peter for a second. Peter was a business owner. He was a business owner. He owned a fishing business. The reason that we know that is because Peter had a house. He owned a home. We know that because his mother-in-law lived there. Now, let me just have you sit on that one for a second. And he asked Jesus to go and heal his mother-in-law as she was dwelling in that home. Now, does that not change a little bit the perspective of Jesus going to Jesus, not a poor fisherman, but a business owner, and saying to him, Simon, Peter, I'm inviting you now to be the feeders, a feeder, an empowerer, an equipper, a sustainer of humanity. And what was Peter's response? He dropped everything and followed. And for three years, he watched and struggled and changed and became not Simon, but Petros, Peter the Rock. And then there on that Pentecost Sunday stood and preached a sermon unlike any other before or after. And then the church went into the community and fed and created a significant difference in the lives of other human beings. Well, friends, it's amazing what can happen when we understand leadership from the Christ-centered perspective. That what happens is, instead of that, that power model that, that we all grew up with, whether it was in business or in politics, that model where the leader stands at the top of that triangle, that, that pyramid, and the leader is expecting all of those beneath them to follow. And if you don't follow, there will be consequences. Our political leaders, our world leaders still, so many of them sit in that old paradigm that leadership is about being on the top, not Jesus. One of the most powerful leaders in the history of the world said what you heard Gene read. Leadership is not about being at the top. Leadership is about being at the bottom. The first shall be last. Servant of all. You catching this? That kind of leadership is what changes lives. That kind of church is what changes communities and the world. Let me close with this, this really brief story. 
It is amazing to me what can happen sitting in a critical care unit waiting room and meeting members of certain families that you've never met before. And I remember sitting with this woman and, and exchanging thoughts about, about business. And she's a business coach, very successful. And we we're talking about the books that, that we've read and she introduced me to a book that tells the story of a doctor, a psychiatrist. His name is Dr. Edward Hollowell, leading child psychiatrist, leading family kind of psychiatrist, and, and he a world-renowned speaker, and here he was going through, he lives in Boston, so he's headed to Logan Airport. And, and those that travel know that, you know, shoeshine folks still occupy spaces in airports. And he thought, okay, I want to be, you know, I want to look good before I get off the plane, so I'll just stop at one of the stations and, and have my shoes shine. So he stopped at the station at Logan Airport, and what he saw there at the station was an older man, probably in his, he thought, early to mid-80s, sitting in one of the chairs, leaning over his walker with his head bowed. And so Dr. Hollowell comes over, and he he sits in the chair and suddenly the man looks up and he says, do you know where the shoeshine man is? Well, I said, oh, I'm, I'm the shoeshine man. And he looked at him and he goes, you? And he said, yes, would you please allow me the privilege of shining your shoes? And so Hollowell climbed up into the chair and put his feet on those beautiful kind of brass stands and the man went to work. And the man began to ask him questions. He said, what do you do for a living? Tell me about your life. And Hollowell did and opened up to him. And, and he looked at him and he said to the shoeshine guy, and he says, what's your name? And he said, my name is Dr. Shine. <laughs> my name is Dr. Shine. He said, Dr. Shine? What, what do you, Dr. Shine? He said, and it's not about the shoes. It's not about the shoes at all. He said, my job is, is to help people. Anyone who sits in this chair becomes a part of my congregation. And what I want to do is support them and, and encourage them and be a positive voice in their life. And I didn't name myself that. Somebody else named me that. My job is to help people shine. In a similar way as what I try and put on their shoes. So how can I help you shine? And they engaged in this conversation to the point where Hollowell almost missed his flight. So much because he was so overwhelmed and overcome by how positive and uplifting the shoeshine guy was. And on that flight, Hollowell created the outline for a book that has become a very fast-growing book in business communities. And the name of the book is... Shine. Shine. Friends, that's our role. We're the shoeshine guys. No matter where people are and what they're doing, we're the shoeshine guys. Our job is to help people shine. To sit and listen to their stories. To become involved in their lives as much as they'll allow us to be. To get to know people in, in ways where we can encourage and equip them, support and love them. And, and it's, it's not 
just out there. We do the same for each other in here. That's what our next piece of worship is, our prayer time. But there's a whole street right over here. Boy, they could use some help shining. I've heard some of their stories now, and it's really important that we help them shine. There's folks all around us. We have three women right now who left for Ethiopia yesterday who are seeking to help people shine in Ethiopia. So my question as I close is, who's in front of you right now? Who's in front of you right now who could use that word of encouragement, who you can help shine? Who is it? Because God is seeking to utilize you. Will you pray with me? God, as we come to this prayer time this morning, first and foremost, we ask that you help us. Help us recognize those folks. Sometimes they're right in front of us. Sometimes they're people with whom we work or our neighbors in our neighborhoods. Sometimes they're people in the church and often they're people we have yet to meet. Help us to be the doctor shines. Not only in this community, but throughout the world. And help us come to terms as those youth in New Orleans, as Melanie, as others. Help us be transformed by seeing ourselves as servants of all. And as we continue in this time of stewardship, help us know it's not about just money. It's about helping people shine. Of giving part of what you've so graciously given to us and allowing it to work for others. Yes, money, but also time, resources, and maybe even shifting our priorities 